0: This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. I'm Jeff Salingo, an author of several books on higher education and contributor at The Washington Post and Atlantic. I'm also a special advisor at Arizona State University, where I lead the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. And that's where we're recording this episode of Future You today at ASU's new Washington, D.C. Center. And uh, thanks to the ASU Academy for supporting this podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Michael Horn here. I'm uh, the Chief Strategy Officer at the Entangled Group, an uh, education studio, and uh, the co-founder and distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, and like you, Jeff, an author of a few books on uh, the future of education, and uh, excited that Entangled helped sponsor this as well alongside Arizona State and uh, this episode, I think, is going to be a really fun one. We've got uh, the man who has been the president of more institutions than any other American. Is that right, Jeff? That is,
0: that is right, and I'm not quite sure uh, anybody will ever break that record of Gordon Gee.
1: Gordon Gee, how many presidencies is
0: it? It's uh, a good question. I think he's will have to tell it, we'll us, have right? To so tell I think it's like six, seven, to. right? I don't know. He's been uh, president of West Virginia University, where he is now, twice. Ohio State twice. twice Brown, yeah. Vanderbilt, right? So so we it'll got be we, interesting.
1: We, we got some we got some numbers in there, but he's gonna To be able to talk to us about the future of an important conversation in this country, which is the future of public higher education. And that's where we get to start, uh, which is what is the environment right now, Jeff, uh, and the outlook for public higher education. It's something you obviously covered at the Chronicle and thought a lot about. Where are we today?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, Mike. When I first got to the Chronicle, I didn't realize just how big of a sector public higher ed is. Uh, you know, most of the, many of the, I went to a private college. A lot of people I know went to a private college. But, you know, 80% of Americans go to public universities. These places are incredibly important, not only for students, but for the economies of their of their towns, their states, and their in their regions. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in North Carolina as a young reporter, and, and I'll never forget Forget that you know they had a constitutional a piece of their constitution that says you know tuition there will be basically close to free as possible. When I lived in North Carolina about 15, 20 years ago, uh, you could go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for like fifteen hundred dollars
1: a semester. When I remember applying, everyone said you know what if you want to go to UNC Chapel Hill from out of state, good luck. Right, because that's way harder than going into any Ivy League at the time.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing that you know until uh, the last couple of years, you know, in many of these states, uh, students paid you know, less than half the cost of, of education. And now in, in most states, they pay more than half um, of the cost of, of education. It's really been a co- quite a flip um, in terms of, uh, of tuition at public uh, colleges and, and universities. Uh, you know, we know that states have been, uh, have been cutting back. Um, in, the last, uh, in the last couple of, uh, of years. Uh, and, in, in, and indeed, you know, the amount that states spend on higher education really hasn't budged much since 1980, um, despite inflation and enrollment increases. On average, uh, state and local support <coughs> per student remains about 17% lower than in uh, 2008. Uh, and, and, uh, and the big one, I think, is tuition at four-year public colleges has risen more than 100%. Uh, since 2001, after taking inflation into account. So I think we're really kind of at a, at a tipping point here around uh, the future of, of public universities. Who are they going to serve? Uh, what's their mission going to be? You know, when I sit on panels or, or attend conferences and, and, and talk to public university presidents, some of them, not all of them, say, well, if we just had as much money as we, had, you know, as, as back much support 80, as, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, all would be good. Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is we're not going back to those days. So I think the conversation really and the question we should be asking now is what is a public university in the 21st century. It's something that I know Gordon Gee, at the end of his career now, um, has been thinking about, about how do you support these institutions? Not only who pays for them, because somebody has to pay for them at the end of the day, but also what should their mission be in terms of research and teaching? You know, should they serve in-state students or out-of-state students and international students, which many of them have been relying on to help their bottom line? So so we have a lot of these issues that have to be taken care of. And, you know, and I'm mostly focused right now on on flagships, and, you know, Gordon Gee is been presidents of flagships, but I know you've been doing a lot of writing on the regional public universities. These are the state normal schools and teachers' colleges that turned into universities in the 1960s, usually, and in some cases, they're in even more trouble than the flagships, because they're
1: really dependent on, on state money. Sure. I mean, you go into a place like Pennsylvania with 14 of these regional state comprehensive universities that, as you said, had their traditions in a, in, in a very often normal school, but meaning a teacher college, yep. uh, and then evolved to really serving the community and the region economically. And then over time, in the boom of the 50s and 60s and 70s of higher ed, really came to look like not quite the flagship university meaning it's something for everyone here one size fits all institution the athletics the research they, they'll say we don't really have research but we do the teaching of all students from all walks of life really complicated missions layered on top of something that originally started is quite simple and now in places like pennsylvania places like georgia etc uh these, for the demographic reasons that we heard about from Nathan Graw, for the reasons of the uh, economy that we've heard about in your books, uh, just these institutions are having trouble attracting both the same caliber of student that they used to, the same numbers of students that they used to, and the state funding has dried up considerably. Uh, what's interesting about the state funding, just to give a little more nuance to the picture you painted, it's absolutely true that funding has, uh, in aggregate, has not declined. Yep. But on a per-pupil basis, it has. And for those who sit there and say, well, gee, why couldn't we get back to those 1980s days or 1970s, 1960s? Uh, The reality is with the retirees coming on, public pensions, health care costs, et cetera, those are eating a lot more of the budget. And K-12 education has priority before higher education.
0: Right. So higher education has always been called the balance wheel of state uh, state budgets, right? It's always the last thing essentially funded and whatever is left over. Um is funded, which is not great from a public policy standpoint because it's very hard to plan uh, from from state universities. So, okay, so revenue. So we need more revenue, or public universities
1: need more revenue. What are the What are the options out there for them? By the way, you know I think Arizona State is a great example, and we can talk. Yep. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that uh, since we're on the campus of Arizona State in Washington D.C. and they're helping us record this, but. What's interesting is that uh, online learning has obviously been a huge way for these institutions to create new program uh, revenue streams. Uh, Extension schools and continuing education has been another. Uh, Basically tapping into the adult lifelong learning market, creating new niches of programs that are very specialized in terms of the regions and economies in which they serve has generated revenue in many cases. The other source that you've seen a lot of institutions do is go for the international student because they might be full paying. Yep. They might be outside of the uh, of, of the higher ed funding system and therefore actually represent full tuition and the The value of that u s degree has significant weight back in their countries, and so that was the clear value proposition for many years to be honest with you, Jeff though, as I look at it, I think a lot of these situations are are becoming more and more saturated. You covered in behind the beyond the horizon, excuse me uh, the uh, decline in the number of yep. international students coming to the United States market. I think online still has lift to give us, but so many institutions are competing in that market. I think those with big brand names in the regions will win. Those who carve out very specific specialties, and particular programs of interest in the job market, will win. Uh, But it's not going to be just this feeding ground where I start an online program and if you build it, they will come. I think those days are over. Right, and not every
0: state university has the brand name, especially outside of their borders, to, to do that. And, you know, you mentioned ASU. I mean, online has been obviously part of their revenue uh, strategy. Research has been a big part of their revenue strategy, and also research in the public good, right? So they're not just
1: doing research for research uh, sake. It's actually interesting on Arizona State, just to interrupt there, yeah. which, which is to say they're one of the few institutions that has both become less elite- And more prestigious from a research perspective at the same time in that they take in many, many more students from all walks of life, not exclusive, really an open access institution more and more that judges itself by how far it can take students. And simultaneously, doing more and more cutting-edge research, getting more and more accolades in that space, they've been able to build up on both accounts.
0: Right? They believe this idea. You know, in the U.S., it, 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 we be, we somehow why uh, somehow believe that uh, you have to be small to be of high quality. Um, In colleges and and universities and ASU believes, you know, you should be measured by the not the people you exclude from admissions, but the people you include and you take to to graduation. And so they've been really focused on on, on scale. They've been focused on on research. Uh, They've also do a lot of work with external partners, right? So a lot of they've been able to leverage uh, a lot of the experiments have been able to do because they are there at the beginning, right? We're, we're going to be uh, broadcasting from the ASU GSV conference um, in April, and it's a conference that they co-sponsor with, uh, with GSV, Global Silicon Valley. Um, and there's a lot of startup companies there in the education space, and, and ASU wanted to have access to those companies from very early on so then they could partner with them and
1: figure out how to, to try to scale. Uh, this, this university. I think it goes a long way to answering the question you asked, which is, in the future, what will these institutions look like? What will the, their missions be? Who will they serve? How will they be sustainable if public financing is going to uh, stay flat? Let's say it actually increases a little bit as there's fewer students for maybe the same dollars, maybe marginally, right? Uh, even still, <laughs> there's a huge question with costs continuing to rise of institutions to serve students. What will these look like? And I, I think it's going to look different for different places. If I'm a regional state comprehensive university, one of the conclusions that I drew on the book that uh, that you collaborated on as well, we wrote chapters in. It's called the uh, University Next Door. Michelle Wise and I wrote a chapter together about innovation for regional state comprehensives, and our conclusion was even though you see a lot of national programs online right now, so for everything from ASU to Coursera to Udacity and so forth. The real opportunity for a regional state comprehensive would be to cut trying to be all things to all people and just say, hey, our regional economy is about X. We're going to go really deep on X and just be the best at it and really tailor-made for this economic cluster and stop trying to extend our operations and our costs as a result to things that are, you hate using this word in higher ed, but not profitable, both from a return perspective for students, as well as, frankly, access to... Uh, the leaders in those fields from a research perspective.
0: Well, and I think also there's a there's a danger. In many ways, uh, public universities are becoming much more privatized and private universities, especially the flagships. And I do think there's a, a little bit of a danger in, in moving down that direction. We've seen public perceptions of higher ed really take a big hit. Uh, a poll from Pew Research Center uh, last year found that a, a, a large majority of Republicans, for example, think that higher ed is bad for the nation. Um, and even among Democrats, it's not really uh, scoring pretty well. And we've seen other public polls uh, in the last couple of months say, say much of the same thing. And, you know, when I uh, – so I, co- I covered um, uh, higher education in, in North Carolina back in the late 1990s. I mentioned earlier North Carolina is a state that really invested – in public higher education back in the the day. And it used to be that you would go maybe to the eastern part of North Carolina, where it's mostly agriculture and farming communities. And people there uh, thought very highly of the University of North Carolina system. They had an extension service where the farmers felt like their researchers were helping them. Uh, they felt that even if they didn't go to school, that their kids would have a chance to go even to places like NC State and, and Chapel Hill. And, you know, and where I grew up in Pennsylvania, the same way around Penn State. And I think one, one of the things I want, we, we, I want to talk to uh, Gordon Gee about, especially around these land-grant colleges, is that in many ways they've lost that mission, right? They lost this idea. Now for, and now, in many of these states the public flagship and the land-grant flagship seem so far away for the average citizen. You know, They've cut back on their extension services, so they're not helping people in the communities, uh, whether it's in farming or uh, economic development. And for the most part, they don't think their kids can either get in to these places, because they're taking more out-of-state students, or they can't afford it even if they get in.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the other thing I guess I would say, which is from a new revenue creation standpoint, I think they also need to be thinking about, as they launch new programs how do we do lower-cost business models that can actually make those things attainable on the public dollar and really serve our communities? But it's a critical question, and I think, if I'm being blunt and I'm curious your take, I think we will see some consolidation in the state comprehensive part of the public uh, realm of of, of higher education. I don't think we're going to see it of flagships. I think they'll be fine. They'll they'll look different, but I think they'll be fine. Uh, But I do think we're going to see some consolidation. If I'm looking at Pennsylvania... They keep putting off the consolidation of those 14 regional uh, institutions in the Penn State system. I would be nervous, though, 10 years from now that all of 14 of those will be standalone institutions. What's your take?
0: Well, I think, you know, being from the state of Pennsylvania, many of those institutions are in the smallest towns. We talked a little bit about this with Nathan Grah in a previous episode of Future You. I mean, they really are the employment centers of the of, of the state and i'll be curious when we have gordon gee in here you know he was in ohio and west virginia where the economies are really suffering and and higher education is seen kind of as a as the light that gets you out of those dark days of of the economy so i'm um, really looking forward to having gordon gee with us uh, and we'll have him uh, when we get back from this break this episode of future you was made possible with support from the academy for innovative higher education leadership The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. For more information and to apply to our next cohort, go to georgetown.asu.edu. This episode was also made possible with support from the Entangled Group, where innovation meets operations. Entangled is a venture studio focused on helping the education ecosystem transition to support the knowledge economy. We build companies and nonprofits that support higher education institutions as they innovate to carry out their critical missions for society in the 21st century.
1: Welcome back to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, and uh, really excited about the uh, guest that we have coming on uh, right now, Jeff.
0: Yeah, Gordon Gee, uh, who I've known through a couple of, of iterations. presidencies, iterations. Right? Uh, you've held more university presidents than any other American, supposedly uh, a record that is probably unlikely to be beat. You've been president twice at both West Virginia and Ohio State. Another record that I doubt anybody will beat. So, is this your last presidency?
2: I hope so <laughs> I, you know it's, it's been a real privilege to be a university president and uh, you know I, I, I love what I'm doing and the fact that they would invite me to come back to West Virginia is highly unusual they forgot that I left them entangled in a mess I guess I have no idea but no it's been a it's been a real experience you know this is my 38th year as a university president so wow. half my life
0: wow right. well you're you're following I think in the footsteps of Michael and I and being an author right you're working on a on a book land grant, about land grant uh, yes. universities, can you tell us a little bit about yes, that? Yes.
2: Well, you know, we have one coming out right now. Uh, the Steve Trachtenberg and I've done on the perils of the presidency, on the good side of it, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, and and then um, on the land grant uh, book, which is also a Johns Hopkins Press, which will come out in the fall. My colleague and I, uh, who was with me at Ohio State, and I had always been talking about the fact that uh, that that um, land grant institutions are very unique. Uh, uh, institutions in this country but in some way or other they had lost their way in my view they had become much more like any other institution there are only 70 plus of them and my view is the fact that they need to be returning to their original mission to their land grant mission which is to be community centered to be focused on on uh, on building uh, relationships uh, with people around the state be certain that they're creating jobs and opportunity and uh, I think, unfortunately, that many of the institutions that uh, we call land-grant institutions have tried to follow the step of uh, other kinds of institutions. You know, it's the same way I feel about anyone. I mean, you know, I'm a devout Mormon. I, I would be very upset if Brigham Young tried to become like uh, Ohio State or West Virginia. That, the point The point to me is the fact that one of the great strengths of American higher education is the fact that we have differentiation. We have large and small, black and white, uh, you know, Mormon and Catholic, we have every kind of institution. So, what we need to do is, we really do need to think about uh, the world in which we're living. Okay? So,
0: Gordon, is that because um, you know, one, somebody once said that prestige in higher education is like profit in the corporate world, right? People go at it at all costs. Is part of that about this prestige race and in higher ed that, that people who led land grant institutions and their and their trustees didn't quite like where they were? Oh, well, you know, of I, the, I
2: went from a land grant can... institution to an Ivy League. Yes, institution. yes, you did, Brown. Yeah from Brown uh, from Ohio State to Brown you know what I tell everyone right now if you want to have priest prestige don't come to our institution if you want to have purpose come to where we are mm-hmm. I think land-grant institutions are places of purpose and that um, and and I think by the way just as an aside I think that one of the most destructive things that ever happened to higher education were these rankings I think particularly mm-hmm. US News and World Report uh, not to be negative but I think that it what it has done it has have people driving towards strange and odd kinds of, uh, of relationships. So, um, yes, I think everyone wants to be someone else. My view is the fact that the best institutions are the ones who say, I want to be me. I want to be West Virginia University. I want to be a grant, land-grant institution. I'm in a very small state with every possible problem, and my role as an institution has had the purpose to solve the problems of the people in that state. It is not to win the Nobel Prize, although I'd love to do that too.
1: (laughs) So I'm curious. It raises sort of two questions if I'm an institution. Uh, One is, generally speaking, what are the steps that land-grant universities should be taking to return to that mission? And second, in your context at West Virginia, what what are you actually doing to to move toward that? yeah,
2: two two things. One is I think that the first step is the fact that we need to recognize we have a very special mission. We need to take a look at what we're doing with Extension, what we're doing with 4-H, what we're doing with – with the community building projects, a variety of other things. we need to, and, and we need to also make certain as an institution that we take advantage of being a land-grant institution, which means that we have physicians and we have uh, philosophers. We need to figure out how to make them lay down like lambs instead of like lions. We need to move from, uh, from vertical universities to horizontal institutions, and the land-grant institution particularly can do that so that they are using every asset to solve problems instead of being isolated, arrogant, and... Uh, and in a different place. I, I, You know, I want I want the land-grant institution to move from being the ivory tower to the helping hand. Hmm. Then the second question, remind me of that. What are you doing in your own context at West oh, Virginia? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're transforming uh, the institution in many ways. Uh, we, we, we hired McKinsey. We asked McKinsey to come in. Now, now the truth of the matter is, is I've I've worked with McKinsey a lot, and I could write a McKinsey report in a half. I can the plan. But I asked a different question. I said, "How do we reform the university in order to reform the state?" Mm. A much different uh, mm. notion. Because that's the land-grant mission. You know, that's what we're about. And so and so they came up with a great report. We now have it moving very aggressively through the state legislature with a number of— um, So what
0: did they say? What are uh, some of the highlights oh, I, of know, it? You uh, know,
2: changing the tax structure, changing uh, a number of, uh, of processes that are— the bureaucratic processes in the state of developing a way to, um, to make sure that we keep our young people there. And the university itself has to change its structure. We just simply cannot reside in Morgantown. One of the things we did— is the coal fields, which is where a number of our major uh, deficits are we took a university-based campus i closed the campus and took a university-based campus to to uh, buckley west virginia and and the notion is uh, the appalachian uh, the appalachian family of which we are we are fiercely appalachian in uh, in west virginia they have two characteristics one they love being families and secondly of all, they don't want their families to go anywhere else but to stay right where they are. And so therefore, if you're going to change the educational uh, profile of those folks, you have to go to be part of their culture rather than the other way around. And so that is precisely what we're doing. Medicine, we, 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 we have three tent poles. One is education, reform the education. This is all part of what we're doing. Reform the educational structure of the state. Number two is move from sickness to wellness, uh, really focusing on health care and of course we have the largest health care system in the state, we are the largest employer in the state uh, through our health care system and then the third thing is to create jobs you know I'm one of the few university presidents in this country that said my job is to create jobs I mean you know it's all this other kind of stuff but my job is to create jobs, I tell everyone we're going to, uh, you know we're going to and we're going to keep our young people there we have to make certain that we keep our talent in the state if we don't then we lose the war from the very beginning.
0: So, uh, Gordon, who pays for all this? I mean, part of the problem is that in public higher ed, especially even going back to the 1860s and the Land Grant Act, is that the state had a huge role um, back then the federal government, but it, since then the state had a huge role in paying for higher education. But we've seen in many states now where students pay the bulk of, uh, of the cost of, of higher education. Well, uh, you know, you're in a state that is not known as wealthy. Uh, you just got off a, a statewide teacher strike, which they're now going to have to put even more money into uh, K-12 through education. So who's going to pay for this?
2: Well, uh, the answer is that universities need to reform themselves. Mm-hmm. For, I, I had this thing I call the freedom agenda. If you can't give us money, give us freedom. So that we can be entrepreneurial, so that we can create our own resources. It doesn't mean to say that we want to privatize. I think that those institutions that have said they want to privatize have lost the support of the people of their state. Uh, And and so the number – and I'll talk about this again today. The number one issue facing higher education is this. How do we increase quality and decrease costs? And no one in higher education wants to talk about decreasing costs. Everyone wants to say, go to the – let's go to the trough. We are worth investing in, and I believe that, and we don't tell anyone why, uh, how to do it and so therefore that's what we have to do. That's number one number two is the fact that um, we have to make the case um, for stabilization of support in higher education um, and, and and we have to do that through the good deeds and the good work. We can't just simply say it. And so I think that I think that public higher education, has brought about its own demise in many ways in terms of state funding because we have not made our case the third thing is this is higher education in general is in in deep trouble because of public perception and i think the land-grant universities are the ones that can really turn that around uh you you know i i was just in an ace meeting and I said, let's just do one thing. Let's all agree that the First Amendment uh, is not is is uh, not just an amendment, that it is a, uh, the, you know, that is it, it is what it is. And let's all say we're going to subscribe to the First Amendment, that we have good ideas, bad ideas, ugly ideas, a variety of other things, and let's live with that. And, um, you know, I went around, I thought people were going no, to... No, nobody what?
0: got up and started no, cheering. No, and not meditation. only
2: that, I felt like I was the College of Cardinals and had to get the <laughs> hell out of there. So, um, you, you know, I mean, that's the point. The point is, is the fact that we're mushy we mush creates a mediocrity and creates lack of support well that's so because
0: most of those presidents are looking for their next job maybe sometimes that's why they're afraid
2: yeah well you know as someone who who's changed jobs more than most <laughs> people maybe are, <laughs> be, being afraid
1: is the wrong way to get a next think, job i think
2: i think i think yeah i think uh, being fearful is good if you're if you're fearful of people um uh, uh, if you're fearful of people trying to do your job for you, on the other hand, on the other hand, being fearful because of the fact that you're afraid that by making a decision you might offend someone, look you know your friends come and go and your enemies accumulate just accept that and after about seven years get the hell out of there
1: so if you're a state institution I'm curious um, you know you've been taking in more international students to deal with the uh, uh, budget declines you've been stealing more students from other states would you stop that activity altogether and say no our focus is within the state or how would you balance that and this is
0: not just talking about West Virginia but if you were in in terms of public uh, universities generally
2: look look, I I believe I believe in I believe very clearly in issue of a diverse institution okay, and, and I don't I don't mean that just in terms of racial or ethnic diversity I believe in terms of ideas in terms of people exposing you know at our institution in small West Virginia we have, uh, we have students from 55 counties 50 states 110 countries and we speak 100 different languages and by the way for the West Virginian from a small town to all of a sudden uh, uh, have a Muslim roommate give a me positive. a break it's a positive yeah. thing But also, the world, in my instance, the world comes to West Virginia through the university. So we tell a great story. We just signed an $83.9 billion um, uh, contract with the Chinese to build energy programs. That would not have happened if the university hadn't been very involved in China. By the way, let me say that again, $83.9 billion dollars. Someone said, well, are you going to get all of that? I said, even if you want to get half of it, I'll take You're, it. You'll be happy. Right. Uh,
0: so, Gordon, we're going to wrap up with this. Uh, um, we I'm were just joking. getting going, okay? <laughs> we were joking earlier about how many presidents you've had, but but we're seeing the pathway to the presidency change. Um, we're seeing a lot of presidents not last very long. Um, we're seeing presidents who uh, who can't move on to multiple institutions like you've had. Um, where do you think the next generation of college presidents is is going to come from, or where she, and and what's the best training for the presidency? Well, in
2: your I, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by training, and I think that that is good training. But I think that there's no um, there's no um, second to having some experience. But the other thing is, is I think I, I think that we have to really start hiring people who are very um, who are not fearful. We just use that word. earlier. The truth of the matter is, if you visit a university president's uh, conference, you look around, and uh, it's a lot of – many good friends of mine. I love them dearly, but they become very gray very quickly, i.e. they have no – Sense of speaking up and speaking out. You know, the university presidents in the in the early 1900s were the leaders in terms of intellectual conversation. Well, they, right. were the, Kerr, they were Clark Curran,
0: right? Clark Curran oh, during yeah, the so Vietnam War. Uh, you, right? you know, right?
2: absolutely. And I and I visited with him, and he said, you know, one of the first things you have to do is speak out. The other said, the other thing, he said, if you love a university, won't love you back. I still remember <laughs> him saying that. But the point is, is university presidents. We need to get people who are brave who are not simply hunting for a sinecure, but who are really bravely speaking up and speaking out, both for the internal audience. You can't be fearful of uh, folks who are going to vote, a, vote no confidence in you. Maybe, maybe, that's, an, maybe that's a sign of uh, courage sometimes. you got to be able to make decisions and then move toward those decisions.
0: So, uh, we had Doug Letterman uh, here from Inside Higher Ed earlier, and we were ending on because he got his start in athletics reporting. We were talking about uh, athletics. Uh, we're kind of in the middle of March Madness uh, right now, and it seems like every year we're hearing more scandals about college athletics. Uh, do you see any reforms uh, coming? You know, Doug thinks it's not going to happen from the inside after covering this for more than uh, 20 years. He thinks it's going to have to come from the outside. You've been at a lot of places with big-time uh, athletics. Uh, what's What are your thoughts on what's the next step for well, college I athletics?
2: Well, I think we're at a tipping point with uh, intercollegiate athletics. You, you know, interestingly enough, I chaired the first presidential reform commission when I was president of the University of Colorado in 1989. The guy who sat next to me, uh, in my office and work very closely with me is Mark Emmert, who's now the president. And Mark and I are great friends. But we both agree that what we have, we have a massive problems and we can't get our arms around it. And, and I think that um, I think that we're going to have to uh, rewrite the whole thing. By that, I mean we have created so many pathways Two problems that we've got to really think of the um, NCAA as a membership organization in which we make it very simple and very clear. Because without doing that, then we uh, then we're going to continue to create these kinds of subterranean problems that we have right now.
1: Gordon, thanks for joining us You're on welcome. Future You and uh, painting a picture of uh, public universities. Uh, uh, playing a bright role in the state's future. Really thank appreciate the time. Much. I appreciate it. And thank you uh, to all the listeners for joining us on Future U as well. I'm Michael Horn. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael B Horn and on the web at uh, MichaelBHorn.com.
0: And I'm Jeff Salingo. And you can follow me on Twitter at J Salingo or on the web at salingo.com And you can download, subscribe, and rate Future U on iTunes and Google Play. And you can follow us on Facebook at Future you Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.